I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh -huh. Rebel Radio is going down. Would you say Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine. This week, we have a really cool episode kind of exploring new business models, new paths to entrepreneurship. Uh, my guest is Blake Coppelson. He's the founder of Proximity, which started out as a YouTube channel uh, featuring new EDM tracks. Um, he's the curator, and he built that up to over 8 million subscribers, over 3 billion views on the channel, and uh, it's really become a powerhouse in helping people discover new EDM tracks. Uh, he's recently turned that into a, a record label and he's on his way to building kind of more of a lifestyle brand with events. Um, they recently were involved in the Room Service Festival, which um, during COVID uh, virtual festival had several million views. Um, and so uh, we get into these kind of emerging careers, new types of companies. Um, and Blake's got a great story about kind of using what he had built on YouTube to turn that into something more important lessons for all of us. This one is co-hosted by my, my good friend, Ethan Bear. Um, you've heard Ethan on this show before, or maybe you haven't, but uh, he's the head of electronic music at Create Music Group. He's also a former co-founder of EDM.com. And we talk a little bit about uh, with EDM.com, he and Blake had kind of a similar path some interesting differences and uh and we sort of a little bit of compare and contrast in um in how they've both kind of used what they were building to pivot into uh something else we also talk about some lessons for new managers stuff that um, everybody's learning as they go nothing like on the job training uh we talk about things like delegation proper handoffs, um, the issue of giving up control, things that plague anybody trying to build a successful business for sure. So let's get into it. Uh, before we do, let's check out a track off of the proximity label. This is Company with Feel It All.
Yeah, that was Company with Feel It All. If you like that one, uh, check out Proximity on YouTube and you'll hear lots of uh, other new music. And now let's get into the interview with Blake and Ethan. Yeah, man. Well, cool. I appreciate you making time. I know it's crazy stuff and you have a lot going on. No, uh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to, to, uh, to, to give us a platform. Well, yeah, well, I think you have a really interesting business. I mean, Ethan, you know, has told me bits and pieces, uh, about what you're doing and what you guys are up to. And I think, um, there's a lot that we can probably learn from you. So, uh, I'd love to, to dig into that. Anything. Um, nice. Well, um, so let's start because I know some people are probably familiar with Proximity as a YouTube channel, but um, but I know your business and the vision for what you're building is much bigger than that. So if you don't mind, kind of just give us a quick rundown of like, what's the business model? What are, what are all the pieces of, of what you're doing now? And then we'll talk about what else uh, you're going to build in your empire. Yeah. So uh, Proximity started as a curation outlet um, 10 years ago. Uh, it was mainly a discovery tool for just music that I liked, similar to a blog. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I realized I was doing was I was indirectly the first person uploading these songs to YouTube. So as YouTube slowly started becoming a music-centric platform, um, you know, and investing heavily into having artists host their music videos on YouTube, uh, we inadvertently got that community aspect, that viewership, and basically ultimately the empire of what YouTube has been uh, from a very early start. So we were able to foster our audience there and grow, you know, within time over these 10 years to uh, 8.6 million subscribers uh, right. and be able to retain that because of the integrity of the channel. So we've never, you know, we've never taken paid uploads. We've never gone outside of our comfort zone. We've never done favors. So hmm. it's very much been a very authentic um, and consumer forward facing approach. Like I speak in a, I speak like directly to the consumers as if proximity was a person. So like, it's like, I love this song. This is why I love, you know, this is why you should care. Like, thank you sure. all for this community. So it's very, very uh, consumer forward oriented uh, rather than corporate. Um, so it has a voice and it has a brand. Um, and then taking that from, from being a curation outlet to, to uh, being incorporated into every single major record label marketing timeline, you know, proximity has been, a resource and a tool for all these majors to premiere and upload their audios. So mm -hmm. when I align with their marketing campaigns, I can see exactly what they're doing. I know what every major does from every single different scope, from an A-list artist to a, you know, a single release artist from, you know, so mm -hmm. taking everything I learned and then realizing that they're basically relying on proximity for majority of their viewership. It's like, wow, it'd be great if I also started a record label and I, I helped, you know, not only capitalize on the fact of my viewership, which is great, but to be honest, it's it's a matter of being more involved with a lot of the artists that I already work with, or just yeah. you know have my input of of my ear of listening to thousands and thousands of records like every month and say, hey, this is what you could be doing better. Hey, sure. like, even from a branding aspect of what I've done with proximity, it's like this is how you can use colors, or this is how you can use video to really mm. um, manage of, of of you know the eight point six million people that are going to watch your thing, and this is how we've seen it succeed. Um, so I like being more involved from a case by case standpoint and, you know, having more skin in the game on these records and helping the artist one time really allowed for me to have, ex have a successful record label. Um, so I guess long story short, you know, we went from curation outlet to record label and ultimately what I see for our community being is, is an MTV or what MTV should have been. Um, we always want to be that outlet where, uh, artists and pretty much anybody can go to proximity to premiere any sort of content piece that they like from music video, lyric video, or any asset in particular. So we're like that source you go to, to see a bunch of artists premiere their amazing content versus okay. building out their own channel, plus doing original programming in a very tasteful way, not doing like a 16 and pregnant randomly, you know, that, that empty, <laughs> well, random. That was my favorite one. It's so funny because it obviously worked, right? And they kept doing more programming like that, but they completely abandoned their their core demographic of music lovers. So yeah. I never want to stray away from that. So it's curating something tasteful in a way where we can just you know, push that 
push that um, narrative forward by doing a live stream gaming series with artists and celebrities, doing like, honestly, even doing like an MTV Cribs, like Architectural Digest did with Zed, showing mm -hmm. off a $15 million home, right? Like there's no entity right now that's doing programming exclusively for dance artists. Um, so, you know, like an artist going undercover and responding to Reddit comments or Twitter comments or going on Tinder, right? Um, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, we want to do stuff like that. So yeah. more than just showcasing music, we want to stem into original programming where we can be, um, um, you know, more of a tastemaker in, in, in that regard. And uh, sure. yeah. I want to talk to you about Fiverr. You know, for 2020, there's no such thing as business as usual. Every company I know, every company you know, is figuring out new ways of getting things done. We're working remote. Some companies are downsizing. All the events are moving to virtual. Even this show, we used to record every episode face-to-face. -face. Now we're doing video chat, phone chat, et cetera, et cetera. If you own a business, pivoting quickly is hard enough, but finding the right people that you can trust to make it happen, that's the key to success. Fiverr is a great freelancing platform that helps you find talent to build your online presence fast. Whether it's building your first website, designing social graphics, you gotta have the right people and getting the wrong people is disruptive to your business. So Fiverr lets you hire freelancers who have proven track records and clear pricing. You're not in the dark, you're not haggling. It just makes everything easier. Use Fiverr to connect with freelancers offering hundreds of digital services from graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, uh, pretty much anything you need done that can be done remote, which is, as we've learned, is everything uh, you can do on Fiverr. You can work with confidence, knowing exactly what you're paying for up front. The payments are released to freelancers once you've approved the work. They have 24-7 customer service, so anytime you have an issue, Fiverr is there to help you. Find talent today at Fiverr.com and get 10% off your first order using our code REBELRADIO. All the digital services you need are in one place at F-I-V-E-R-R.com, code REBELRADIO. Again, that's Fiverr.com, code REBELRADIO. I appreciate all that because, uh, you know, part of what we like to talk about on this show is, is models for success, right? That we don't have to... Uh, start from scratch all the time. People have gone out and learned things that we can we can build on top of. And so, um, you know, you've given us some of that. And I want to I want to dig into a little bit of that. But let's go back. Uh, first of all, how do you, how do you guys know each other? Uh, you know, Ethan just said <laughs> we got to have Blake on the show, uh, and I pretty much trust everything Ethan says. So yeah, how so you guys connect? we've had like a a parallel but kind of somewhat distant relationship for a long time. Um, when Blake, right around the time when he started doing the uploads on YouTube is right around the time I started doing uploads on SoundCloud. Okay. And my strategy was I was a little too late to be an early adopter on YouTube. Blake had like, you know, six months on me or something. So I was like, screw that guy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my chips in the SoundCloud basket. Yeah. And you know, we know how that ended up. It wasn't <laughs> the right basket compared to the YouTube basket. Uh, but it was, it, you know, it was a great run and it kind of led me to the exact same decision where it's like, okay, I have this awesome network on SoundCloud. Everyone comes to me for promo. Majors come to us for promo. All the indie labels come to us for promo, but I'm not making any money off all this stuff because it's yeah. other people's content, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just getting, I'm getting there like, okay to use it. And sometimes labels are paying for the promo, but there's no money in the content, right? There's no IP, right. there's no ownership, sure. there's no long-term vision there. And so I made the same decision. Um, one day I just realized like, look, all these people come to me begging us to upload their song on our channel. What if I just start saying, sure, but I wanna own it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, the first, uh, I would say the first three to six months were uh, a lot of like, upset people not understanding why we are changing our model and yeah. after that it just kind of became everyone that knew about soundcloud knew that if you wanted to do a release you hit up the edm network yeah. so it kind of was a very similar thing we created our our empires on different platforms um and then i ended up going a little bit more in the media direction and launching edm.com sure. and a couple other projects and so 
Blake and I were always like distantly involved in that he was in the YouTube space. I was in the SoundCloud space. I also was in the blog space. So we would support mm -hmm. some of his stuff on EDM.com. He'd support some of our stuff on Proximity. Um, every like couple years or so, we'd see each other at an event. Like I think the first time we met in person was at EDM Biz while mm -hmm. SFX was doing their big EDM takeover. And we met with like a bunch of the other YouTube curators. So we had like a kind of distant, distant but friendly colleague relationship for a long time. And then I would say in the last like two years, uh, I started working much more closely with him and his team on supporting Proximity Records because I just really fell in love with a lot of the music that they were curating. Um, and then I moved out to LA about six months ago and I was at, uh, I was meeting with someone at the Soho house and Blake was there. And we kind of just like, I jumped into the conversation. We talked for a little bit and kind of revealed itself that like all of our other friends in the area, like we share like most of the same friend group. So we just kind of came together and decided like, let's work on some label stuff together. Let's work on some video event stuff together. And yeah, we're just kind of exploring ways that our businesses overlap because like we were talking about the other day, it's, it's always risky doing business with friends, but at the same time, it's the only time that it's like fully rewarding. So Absolutely. we dove in and so far it's been great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I want to reinforce what he's what he said. We've been working on so many projects like him and I, and we brought a few other friends into the mix, and it's it's been working out so well because we all have different skill sets, right? Like I'm very on the digital um, aspect of not only YouTube but just digital in general. Mm -hmm. um, Ethan has this amazing background of curating music as well, being a tastemaker as well as working and pioneering the EDM division of a one of the biggest, you know, tech brands in, in the music space. Um, sure. oh, his skill set is invaluable. And then we bring in like, you know, Corey that we've been talking to and um, he's Corey's our agent friend. And then we have another okay. friend, Mark who's a manager. And so there's just, there's a, there's, we have our crew of people that mm -hmm. all contribute to our, to our different projects. And it's a very, uh, it's a very nice self-sustaining ecosystem. And um, yeah, that's great. I, I love the background and, and um, you know, I love something you, you pointed out, right, to, you know, Ethan, you kind of bet on SoundCloud, which mm -hmm. was sort of the wrong bet. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it was and it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I think it's worse for SoundCloud than it is for you. Yep. Right? <laughs> because you were able to build something, and this is, this is, I think, important in our careers, right, is you were able to build something that got you to the next step. Right. right. And we talk and we talk about the pivot or stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Like you did that on the back of SoundCloud. Now, what I think um, I've said this a lot, although I don't know if I've said it publicly, but SoundCloud should have done what you did. Right. SoundCloud should have turned to all the rappers who were forming the SoundCloud rap genre and saying, we want to own this. And right. We're, and the only know, reason that the big streaming platforms didn't do that is just the ownership structure of all of them. And like, how the majors are involved and could it have been done properly? I think so. But there's always like a little bit of a barrier to entry of these DSPs becoming labels because of their positioning with the majors and like not wanting so, to. Uh, so if I were the CEO of SoundCloud, you know, that's, I'm going to go back and like revise history in a way that's really convenient for me. Um, like if I were the CEO of SoundCloud <laughs> at that time, I would have not done the deals with the labels, with the majors. I would have not tried to be a lesser Spotify or YouTube or like a, a lesser place for people that just want to hear everything. I would have taken the kind of ridden the success of the EDM DJs and the rappers who were, you know, racking up millions of plays on that platform. And I would have, I would have tried to own those. And I would have, you know, I think, I think I could have built the biggest rap label in the world um just you could have for sure if they had done that that would have been the right move they should have stayed as the underground community for sure yeah and it, you know again we're <clears throat> a bunch so of stuff Blake that's all Blake's biting his tongue he has a thought on that he just didn't oh, have please. that that's the issue you know their their platform is relying on bootlegged content so it's sure. the same way that twitch is getting screwed over and changing their policies uh because of warner's dmca takedowns recently mm -hmm. yeah. why soundcloud soundcloud was biggest platform for sharing music at the time and then they get strong-armed by labels it's either you work with the majors or you don't have any music on your platform that was the biggest issue so now that they launched soundcloud go or i don't know what their premium version is yeah um 
the platform is dead. Nobody's paying premium for SoundCloud. It doesn't make sense. Sure. Yeah. So it's still like this underground community, but yeah, in an ideal world, that, that would be a great idea. It's it's again, I I do also agree with Ethan. That it's it's always weird, you know, seeing like a Spotify or any entity like actually backing an artist and having like a political agenda behind the artist when it's supposed to be like they're just like a distribution platform where you get access to music, right? Because when they when ev- when anybody has more equity in a certain project, they're going to push it more. Sure. So, so like for a label, like even like myself, when I look at SoundCloud or Spotify, like signing like a, a rehab record, right? And then pushing it all over Mint and pushing it all over this Spotify playlist. I'm like, wow, like that's not organic. That's not a, like, how's that fair? And it's not. But the thing is, it's not my company. It's not for me to decide how to yeah. use it. They more skin in the game. They make more money. You know, the artist makes more money. They get bigger. So mm-hmm. for me, it's more of like a level playing field issue than it is um, um, a company ethos issue. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, that's just. Yeah, my I wonder idea. what the legal implications would be if they started doing that much more aggressively. Because that almost becomes like a little bit of like a not an anti-competitive practice, like. Yeah, well, I, think, I, think, I think I think they're different. Like, you know, what what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, obviously Spotify is in a different situation, right? Mm-hmm. And because these guys, uh, you know, they've all positioned themselves as a place for, to stream all music. So mm-hmm. rank. Although there's a lot of shit that's not on there. I I look for a record, you know, probably at least once a month that's not on the streaming right. service. Um, but you know, but that's their business. So then I think, yeah, it becomes a conflict of interest when they yes. have interest in some things, not in others. I think, you know, what I was suggesting was more like spot of, um, SoundCloud just played a game and lost that. And yeah. then I think what they should have done is played a different game. I agree. Yeah. I mean, they I agree. Should have been in the content ownership game. Yes. Um, anyway, I, uh, which now they are. Years right. and years and years later, yeah. right? Once it's once it's too late. That's yeah. it. I mean, that's what happens a lot. Is you learn the lesson after it's too late, and then yeah. You, you, I you think know. that's actually the answer to your the answer to that problem. There is, you know, I think I think a lot of the DSPs initially viewed it as kind of like the same way that the world viewed like the Apple Store, right? Apple got in a lot of trouble because they would go right. to the Apple Store, they'd see which things were doing the best, and then they'd make an Apple version of that app right. and put the other one off the store, right? Yeah, but you know who else does that? Walgreens, CVS. Totally, they like, do their internal, I mean, like- that, their That's a business app. model, right? Yeah, so I think, there was, I think there was a lot of fear, not necessarily about the legal repercussions of it, but about the perception of how right. people would view them if they started doing that. And so what they did is they didn't do it for a while, and then eventually they realized they had to do it, but it was already kind of too late and they didn't want to go back on them saying they weren't going to do it. So what they did is each one of them bought a distributor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, so, you know, SoundCloud bought Repost, uh, yeah. Spotify invested in DistroKid, and now they do like really long-term high percentage distro deals that are basically just them signing, like acting as a label, but they're able to kind of pretend like they're not a label. So, wait, so I want to talk more about the business you're building and, and kind of how, how that, but um, I, but you started out saying like you, you just started by posting music that you liked and you listened to a lot of music. So how did you, where did that come from? How did you, first of all, do you remember the first record you ever bought? I do remember the first record I ever bought. Um, okay. It was hybrid, Linkin Park Hybrid Theory. Fantastic record. Blake? I think... I think I was with my brother at Tower Records and I bought Daft Punk's homework. Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, no, he was ahead of the game, right? I, I got into dance music because of this Russian girl that I was with at this, uh, this uh, sleepaway camp. I went to JCA for one year, which was this like, <laughs> and he showed me Bass Hunter. And then I was like, wow, mm. really good. And then I had a few other friends show me like Proxy and Bloody Beat Roots. And then my brother showed me like Daft Punk way back in the day before that. But mm-hmm. my connection didn't really grow until, um, until I was like 14, 13, 14 years old. No, like 12, yeah, like 12 to 14 years old. 
And then the business model came as a result of accessibility. Like I had no idea how to make a blog. So I was like, oh, I can easily just make a video with a background and throw the song up on Windows Movie Maker and upload it to YouTube and boom, I have an accessible link that I can send to everyone. That's how it started. So as, as the business grows, you know, does, is it always still just about whether you like a song or not? Or are you, you know, Ethan and I have talked about this a little bit. Like, do you become more analytical? No. Right? Or no. I'll never be analytical. It will always be it will always be about the record because I've seen so many records perform only because of how good they are. I, I'm a firm believer that I feel like no amount of not no amount of marketing dollars because it's a little vague, but I feel like more so than not, records that actually are really, really, really good will carry their weight in terms of how they how they perform. You know, okay. and the reason why I can even I can even um Reinforce that from an analytical standpoint is that I've had records where I've spent five to ten thousand dollars on it and it sucked, it tanked, it didn't perform. And then I've had records where I legitimately put zero dollars behind this and it has millions of plays across the board because it resonates. For some reason, word of mouth spread. This is a good song. Like this is amazing. Um, even from records that we don't own on YouTube, you know, we'll put like a no-name artist next to the Chainsmokers and Kaigo, and that upload will perform significantly better. So those are like analytics but if you go to me and you're like if i have a good song from an artist that has a thousand followers versus a, a, a song from an artist that has, that has a hundred thousand followers and the one from the smaller artist is better i'll go with the smaller artist 100 times 100 out of 100 times interesting yeah yeah i think it was super important considering the way blake built his company i think him being consistent with his taste is really important because like what I did was I built a ton of different platforms, right? I built a right. different channel for each genre and okay. everyone was a very different taste. So it wasn't like I was nurturing an, a long-term audience that kind of aligned with music that I liked and I continued to build that, right? It was really like fans of specific genres. Mm -hmm. So it was much more, my approach was much more analytical and much less subjective. I think that ultimately, that allowed me to grow those verticals very quickly because they just fit that exact match domain. So like people would Google dubstep and the first thing they'd see is like my website, my, my SoundCloud, my Twitter, my Facebook, because I had slash dubstep on it, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it was really good for building what I was trying to build. However, switching into a label was a really hard process for us. Um, it took several years. It, went, it took from like the end of 2014 to like mid 2016 before it was working. And it was because we had to change all these genre channels into label channels and actually like rebrand them as like Hegemon and Echelon and Pantheon and rebranding generic channels into like curated tastemaker channels is really hard. And so it was great for fast growth, but it was difficult for transitioning into like a more IP based and ownership based model. Yeah. I think Blake faced a different challenge yeah. where his was largely originally, and please jump in obviously, Blake, yeah. I'm not missing anything. But by doing the curated model, one of the things that he ultimately ran into, and I'm guessing this is kind of what prompted the transition into, into being a label as well, is YouTube really started cracking down on content claims, right? Yeah. And heavily penalizing not, uh, channels that aren't official artist channels that mm -hmm. upload music, right? Mm -hmm. And so with a model that was based around his taste, a lot of that ended up being awesome artists that he liked remixing popular songs, right? Because that's a very, that's an easy way to tap into like high search volume with a relatively unheard of name, right? And that was an incredible model for building the channel. But when YouTube shifted and like started demonetizing channels and penalizing them for claims, you had to make a decision of like, okay, do I just keep doing what I'm doing and watch things slowly wither and die? Or do I pivot and start mm -hmm. signing stuff that still fits that taste, but that is yeah. my personal taste and that I'm gonna own? And yeah. ultimately you did it at the right time as well. But that process I'm guessing was a little bit easier because people already knew your taste and you already knew your taste, right? Whereas I had no idea what my taste was. <laughs> right, because I've been training them for so long, right? It's always been a journey. It's never yeah. been left of center uploads. It's always been just a gradual change throughout the past 10 years. Yeah. Uh, your own personal like taste, right? Like, so you know. talk about the brand 
that you're building. I, I read, I don't know if it was on your site or somewhere that, you know, you, you have a vision of building a brand uh, like Red Bull. That's yep. both, uh, that's a, a brand and a lifestyle. Um, yep. So give me the, what does that look like when you have succeeded? And uh, what's the strategy for getting there? So I really respect what Red Bull did in terms of, you know, being an energy drink and then creating a product, like a universal product as a result, like an ancillary product as a result of their drink, like a vodka Red Bull is a staple, right? I'm not trying to necessarily replicate a vodka Red Bull. However, I like their approach to, um, you know, becoming an energy drink and then translating their, their, their brand into what made sense. And that was high energy sports mm-hmm. and going into music as well. And being like, being a tastemaker, that's what they did. Um, you know, the records that they signed are very specific. The sports that they got into were very high energy off the wall, like very cool. The recap videos were amazing. They're not, they don't look corporate. When I, when I look at Red Bull, they have corporate capital, but they, they, they don't have corporate consumer facing um, um, agendas. So it's like, it's very raw, it's very cool. Uh, and they were able to make an amazing brand just out of their first product. And I think, um, that influences what I want to take from us, you know, originally starting on YouTube, but then curating amazing events, like both digitally and online. Um, we've done that somewhat to a degree with Omni and Hakkasan group in Las Vegas, and we've been able to do on-site activations on their properties. And that's just like a very small taste of like what I want to accomplish large scale, sure. um, you know, doing a stage at EDC Vegas a couple years ago and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's us having a merch line where that's not dependent on the logo or our brand and people liking our merch solely for what it is, right? It's, it's that's what I want to accomplish on that end. I want original programming to stand on its own from an IP standpoint. Um, and also again, like curating and, and doing it in a very tasteful way. Um, that is, is cool. And it's not, you know, it's not scripted. It's not whatever. It's, it's, it's just authentic. Mm-hmm. And Again, signing music with no analytics. I'm not a corporation or uh, an investment banking firm that is looking at streams over the course of years and seeing what performs and buying that. It's the opposite. I'm just investing in what I believe truly will succeed and putting my time and energy into that. I've seen it do well. Um, so I think that's that's kind of like my goal is, is in every facet, whether that's management, publishing, original content, um, curating music, and continuing to doing what I'm doing and making proximity the face of electronic music for when you think of it, or just dance crossover music because dance music is all the time. That's sure. that's is to be like the mix of MTV, Red Bull, and Vice. Those are like my three influences. Okay, um, so let's talk about that a little bit. But but you know as you as you become more successful, like more opportunities come your way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that makes, in some ways it makes the job harder, makes certain things easier, right? But it makes, it also makes the job harder of kind of staying focused on that goal that you just described. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I wonder how much you've thought about the, the process or the, or, you know, how you go about deciding what to say yes to and what to, what to put your energy into yeah that's a very good question because you know once you have success not only do you see yourself and your company being able to you know branch out into so many different areas you know you get sometimes get too excited and then you spread yourself too thin and that's that's the last thing that you want to do is is take that momentum and then disperse it out and just it fizzles out right over everything that you're excited about doing um you know from being a curation outlet to actually being a record label that took four years, four or five years. And in the last three years, we've done nothing except solidify and become a label very properly. Um, and then now three years after we become a record label, now we're doing events because we don't want to be like Rome where we expanded way too quickly and then we slowly got eaten up. <laughs> Rome is a very good example. Like they were the biggest empire in the world. And then they slowly just got attacked from every corner and, and, and fell off. So it's making sure that our merch is grounded. Our label is grounded. You know, we, do we have a team that can, you know, that has the bandwidth to facilitate original programming? We're going to that now. Um, but we just, just, just started doing these online events and festivals the past few months. Uh, so that, that's been our focus now and our allocation of resources in terms of like hiring out and 
you know, what we're trying to push. And once we make sure that that's done and that's done right, and it can go from A to Z and we're not worried about it. And, you know, we have all the experience in making sure it's done right. And we move on to the next thing a year or two. From now. Yeah. Is this your first time leading a team? Yes. I, yeah. What's been, uh, what's been the hardest part so far? Um, letting go of responsibility and trusting your team can do the job. I think, uh, any business owner. Right answer, by the way. Yes. That is the hardest part. Yeah. It, is it should be the hardest part if your business is your baby. Anybody who's obsessed with their business wants to control every aspect of their business because they think they can do it the best. They care about it the most. They, you know, they want to be hands-on. Yeah. The hardest part for me was genuinely letting go of responsibility and trusting that other people can do it as well as I can. And that took years from a mental state, not, not from actual execution state to prove that it worked. And then as it proved that it worked, then I had more time to actually do other things that made me excited. And when I let go of responsibility and other people were able to, you know, drive the income of that particular branch of proximity, then we grow as a company as well from, from a, from a revenue standpoint, but also from a profit standpoint. So I think, uh, you know, letting go of responsibility, giving that trust, uh, believing in your team, delegating properly is also another thing. And, uh, I never learned any of those skills by no means was I ever, I'm still learning. Right. Yeah, I'm still figuring those out. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard for me to delegate, but, uh, it's, it's required. So it's, it's, well, yeah, Ethan, I'm going to ask you the same question because I know we talk a lot about leadership, but, but I will say like that, you know, remember this when that gets hard, mm-hmm. right? That, um, the guy I always mess his name up who started Red Bull, um, you know, he was selling the first cases by himself, mm-hmm. right? And he went and found the formula in, uh, Thailand or wherever it was. Right. Um, he did all this stuff by hand and he never, could have gotten to build a multi-billion dollar multinational company had he not given pieces of his job away mm-hmm. right and so our job as leaders is to replace ourselves is to chip away the things that someone else should be doing and let them do them mm-hmm. and so for me what's been helpful um, is one to just remember that that i can't do the things that i want to do until I get rid of the things that someone else should do. Exactly. It just isn't the bandwidth. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other thing that, that I've learned along the way is um, whether someone does it as well as you do is totally irrelevant and you need to let that go. Right. Um, because it, it holds us back. Right. And, and all you need them to do is do the job as well as it needs to be done and kind of not compare it to your standard. Um, that's my chronic problem. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And I'm, I'm telling you that like, I, I don't always get that perfect myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is what I've learned along the way. And, I, and I've, you know, I've, I've read a model that has been helpful to me sometimes, which is, you know, perfection is non-existent. So let's get that out off the table. Um, the, the best thing to do is get something 80%. Mm-hmm. And then hand it off to someone else and let them take it their 80% and then you're at 96% and that's close enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and that last 20% was done by someone else that yeah. you didn't have to worry about. Um, and so as sometimes I remind myself of that if I, I'm holding on to something. Mm. No, it makes sense. It's, it's exactly what you said. That Red Bull example is perfect. You can't. You, only have to you, can't, you can't be a perfectionist. That's right. No, I, I agree. I love that. I love that yeah, I, I definitely think that's, um, especially as someone that start like you start out building your own business and you're the only one, it's easy to fall into that understanding that you are the best at everything that you do. You know, yeah. not not literally the best at everything you do, but you're the one that has to do the work, right? Sure. And after after being the only one for so long. It's another one of those things that it's just, you have to learn a whole new skill set of like delegation. And I'm now, you know, five years into having to switch to delegation and it's still really hard. Yeah, I agree. 96, when I know I could have done 100, is still, it's hard to, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think years ago, I I hired one of those like virtual assistant services. That was like the, you know, like the guy was in India and he was available to me, you know, 
certain hours of the day, and uh, and I had to just, you know, I think I, I think I had to email him or go to their website. It was like several, you know, the technology wasn't where it is today, um, and it was it wasn't great. But here, what was great about it is like you had a guy who you'll never meet, probably won't even have a conversation with, um, and. You know, there's a little bit of a language barrier, although they spoke English, but not necessarily the way I speak English, right? Um, <laughs> and so it forced me, I used them for about six months. And, and what it forced me to do that was incredibly helpful is it's super specific. Get really good at explaining what I wanted done. Mm-hmm. Right? And so because, and I learned it the hard way, and they even had it on the website. Like, if you give vague instructions, you're going to get vague results. Right? Like, and it was like, I want you to, you know, go to check these 10 websites and bring me back this exact information. And here's how I want to format it or whatever. And, um, and there were, you know, I bumped my head on that a few times. And by the end, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm learning how to express myself in a way that yeah. that's carried with me, you know, since then. That, um, because again, like you guys are saying, like that's a lifelong, you know, it's a lifelong learning to be able yep. to delegate and do that that well. That's a really good like skill set to develop is like being able to better explain how to do something or how to how to get something done. Because I think that's honestly that's probably a bigger challenge for me than being able to delegate. I'm more open like just being open to delegating things is not hard. But for me, when I like let's say there's a task that I've been doing for years, right? And I realize I'm at a point where I should not be spending my time doing that because it's the company is basically losing money by me spending my time doing that. But the problem is, is like, I see that situation and I kind of look at it and I do a little bit of like quick mental math and I, I scare myself into like, Oh my God, the amount of time it's going to take to teach someone to do this. I might as well just do it myself. Right. Yeah. And in that circumstance, I was right. It would take longer for that person to do it than for me to do it. Unfortunately, that doesn't hold true when I'm doing it a thousand times, right? Right. right? And so that initial like barrier to entry of like, God, I got to teach someone something prevents me from doing that and then permanently handing it off. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is silly. Right. The other thing that's been helpful to me is, is realizing, um, you know, if I'm doing the work instead of delegating it to somebody that I pay $15 an hour, then I'm costing i'm losing my company the difference between 15 and whatever i make for an hour Mm -hmm. Um, right i'm literally yeah totally down the toilet yeah Uh, because the work that you're doing is earning less money than your hourly (laughs) um and you know like i mean these are these are lifelong skills Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had Digital Mirage two months ago, April third to the fifth. We had two million unique attendees over the three day weekend, and we generated over four million plays uh, just on YouTube. Um, we, we were able to raise three hundred thousand dollars for. A sweet relief musicians fund who is an amazing organization that uh, you know properly allocates uh, funds to people in the music industry who are put out of work during coronavirus. Um, so we were able to raise a ton of money for them. Then uh, we learned so much. We 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 from conception to execution, it was two and a half weeks uh, putting that festival together with like a brand, all the artists, all the artist assets together. And, um, and then we realized that people were still going to be home, you know, a couple months after after the event was over. And we're like, we, we still have an opportunity to, to do another one. Um, and we're doing the next one tomorrow and uh, for the entire weekend. Um, switching the charity to go into uh, into two different charities versus coronavirus relief. And that's uh, Equal Justice Initiative as well as Color of Change. Uh, they're both national charities they, that help with um, Black Lives Matter. Uh, and really helping, you know, from from a legal standpoint to and, uh, 
you know, from a legal standpoint of offering free lawyer, free lawyer services to those in who are, whether it's bonds or, or, or um, probation, whatever, whatever people are dealing with, they can, they can get those, those resources for free. Uh, Color of Change is helping, you know, push, push that narrative forward of, of equality and, and change and, and just kind of voicing that. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's this weekend. We're hoping to do the same numbers, if not more, through the engagement. It's, it's looking very optimistic. Um, and we, we noticed that, you know, these online festivals, there's, there's three reasons why artists like being involved. One is obviously the charity aspect of being able to help. Um, we're doing a profit share split with the artists as well. So they'll be getting 50% back of the donations received. Uh, but the other side of it is, um, is uh, what's it called? Is um, the, the actual promotional value that they get from being part of these festivals. So when you have 100,000 people watching you at the same time with the accessibility of being at their computer, all 52 artists that played the last festival were trending worldwide on Twitter because everybody was talking about the set in real time. Uh, so it was very exciting to see the engagement rate of people, you know, the accessibility factor then being able to access their social media and interacting with the artists and their friends and talking about the set versus being live at a festival, which is obviously a completely different feeling. Um, but this just shows something different. And the, the last thing is the artist being able to, to premiere or showcase their sets either to people who will never be able to see them live from whether or not that's a financial or geographical uh, reason, and also to be able to premiere you know, their new music. Because if you have 100,000 people listening to your song, that's incredible. That's incredibly valuable. That's an ancillary marketing piece that no label can replicate like whatever they want. So them taking advantage of, of that time to promote a release because that engagement helps you tenfold in terms of future longevity of the release. So uh, a lot of people are excited about the results that come up and now they get to rethink some of the finances too. Uh, the revenue model, uh, we realized that a lot of artists, you know, are struggling. Touring was their main source of income. Um, they can't just not tour or release music forever, right? They have to get out. So being one of the players that can at least help them financially, you know, get make ends meet is, is something we wanted to make sure that we were able to do. Um, and also, you know, how do we properly program this to make it more professional and give the artists more time to to really showcase something that they really want to, you know, showcase to the entire world, uh, and giving them more of a platform and more of like a more advancing info to really like say this is the platform that you have, this is the voice that you can do, or this is the voice that you can speak. Um, use this however you want. We're here to support, and then us just, you know, making sure that all the assets are delivered on time, that we're getting all fifty-five artists posting at the same time. You know, there's so many small. Uh, advancing issues that that we learned from the last one that we wanted to make sure that we're properly informed to not only the artists but to their audiences as well. So that was that was a tough tough conversation. Right. Step one is like throw an event. Step two is like optimize the event. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely optimization was the biggest issue here. If you like this one, um, let's go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out my interview with Peanut Butter Wolf. He's the founder of Stone's Throw Records, another great uh, success story of independent record label, very different in, in his approach to what Blake's doing. I think it's a good highlight for, you know, the idea that uh, there's many paths to success. You know, it's all about the philosophy of the founder and how they go about executing their vision. Um, it'll be a fun counterpart to uh, to the to this episode. So check that one out later. Um, so you know, as you mentioned, this this uh, this one's going to support uh, Black Lives Matter and and causes related to that. Um, I think there's a you know industry wide you know, certainly global, but, um, but specific to the industry, there's, you know, debate or a lot of, uh, you know, people, companies are kind of figuring out what responsibility they have in social justice and activism in, right. Um, you know, I think there's a, 
a lot of just lip service out there and a lot of people are um, well-meaning trying to take action or figure out, you know, what, what their place is in this conversation, especially people who are not black, uh, but who, you know, work with black artists, black partners, black fans, whatever. We live in a, in a multicultural world. And so um, how are you guys thinking about those conversations? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, ever since, ever since uh, the protests started happening, um, by all means, proximity was never a very, you know, advocate uh, political company. We always wanted to stay away from politics just in sure. general. Um, but I think now was really a good, a very good time to step up and kind of do something about driving a narrative and using our platform for something positive and create change and create awareness. Um, you know, over the past couple of weeks, we've shifted, not shifted proximity completely, but we've been very, um, very adamant about using our platform to voice change, to create awareness for any petitions or, um, you know, responsible, uh, the charities to, to, to send money to, um, as well as us shifting, you know, our, our, our donations from, um, from Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, who still needs it, but allocating those to EJI and Color sure. Change. Um, yeah. But then going back to proximity about, you know, not only voicing, but educating. So we took a different stance of educating our, our fans and audience and, and driving that narrative by, um, doing history pieces on black culture and, and the influence that that has had on electronic music. Yeah. Like R.P. Boo, Frankie Knuckles, The Bellevue Three, DJ Cool Herc, like those are four names that, sorry, four groups or names that we highlighted yeah. over the last couple of weeks and laid out a lot of resourceful information on how they basically laid the foundation for a lot of the reason why the artists are where they are today. Um, so EDM music being, you know, very, very heavily influenced, if not built upon black music, uh, it's that we wanted to voice uh, and, and we wanted to take that approach because it was more authentic and you know we are a music entity so we wanted to really highlight that um and any like affiliate articles that were relative um and then from an actual action standpoint diversifying our portfolio of who we work with and including more more uh, people of color in general um uh on our label signings and and, and just driving that narrative forward as well from from an action standpoint so th those are the ways that we're trying to do it through donations through through actual label services through uh, curation curating and, and even educating so th those are the different models that we're doing that's great i mean i think i think that's what it takes is is really all of those things mm -hmm. um i got a lot of shit this week on reddit for uh an article I posted about uh, EDM being black music, and um, mostly from people who are just like not disputing it, but just didn't want to hear it. Um, yeah. <laughs> of course, and, yeah, and and you know whatever Reddit's Reddit, but but I think you know uh, for me like the you know the history is important. Of like course, the cultural context is important. Music doesn't exist; it's not just sound, right? Yeah. It, it's it's humanity mm -hmm. expressed through sound. Um, and so all that really matters. And so, you know, that's great to hear. Um, well, I know you guys have a, uh, have a hard stop in just a couple minutes. So, um, we may have to come back and do a part two. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, on Cirque du Soleil or anything, uh, Blake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting, I mean, that just goes into the original program. It's just like, how can we, how can we take our platform and our voice and our audience one step further? You know, we have a unique business and a business model, and there are other unique companies that, you know, may not necessarily have a digital voice, and yeah, we're there and helping them portray that. And it's just it's just combining skill sets. So, yeah. what is it you're doing with them? So, it actually it was with Cirque du Soleil, and now the executive uh, of Cirque du Soleil left the group, hmm. uh, and he took all of his projects with him. So. Originally, what we were doing was we were going to do five custom choreographed music videos at five of the venues that Cirque du Soleil has in Las Vegas. Oh, cool! Um, with five different artists and premiering five of their five of their singles. We're still doing the artist side of it of, of premiering five singles with five artists, but now mm -hmm. it's a multicultural, uh, diverse approach with the guy who left Cirque du Soleil. So, this is very tentative, but it's not proprietary. But talking about you know, doing a music video at Petra in Jordan, like, and really taking advantage wow. of some 
and wonders of the world. Like uh, the Great Wall of China is, is working with the Chinese government is one thing that we're already doing. Uh, Christ of the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro. We want this to be a multicultural thing because our audiences are multicultural. Vegas is cool. And to be honest, that would have been an amazing project. Um, but I think taking him and his expertise of being able to do what he does at Cirque du Soleil and him being the youngest person at the company who got promoted five times within two years, what he was able to do at Cirque, taking all of his projects with him, his contacts, and taking it just one step further by taking it uh, taking it global and showcasing diversity and culture in different areas of the world. And um, I think that's an amazing, amazing project that uh, is going to hopefully come to life in the next six to nine months. Yeah, that sounds super cool. Yeah. Yeah, just nice. I'll, I'll add one more note. Um, but the reason that I wanted to set up something with the three of us is because I kind of learned a bit of this from both of you, actually. Um, but one of the things that I think is most interesting uh, about, about both of you in general is the ability to kind of like know what your strength is and know what you're good at. And rather than just focusing on just that, finding as many ways as possible to extend the tentacles of like your core strength into as many different places as possible while still being able to obviously manage everything. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, Josh, like, you know, from the very beginning of like you kind of like explaining to me what culture marketing is and like how to actually integrate brands into something that like feels organic as opposed mm -hmm. to like just plastering a, you know, a logo on something like the whole integration of seven up within the dance music space. Um, what Blake is working on in terms of transferring into events and transferring into a label and, you know, building out some of this branded content that all started around a shared music taste, you know? Yeah. So I think that's one of the most interesting things about my job as well as what Blake is doing and as well as what you're doing is just finding ways to take what you love and what you've been good at and bridging the gap between that and everything else that excites you in life and just finding ways to like really bring different verticals and different markets and different businesses together because that's how you do new stuff. There's always yeah. someone that's already best at just doing this, but you can be you can stand out by doing this and combining it with this. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> yeah. So now the Wizard of Oz curtain comes down. <laughs> nice. That's perfect. Um whoop. Let's end on this then, maybe. Uh, and, and like I said, we'll come back for a part two and talk about lots of other fun stuff. Cool. But, um, but but where do you go for help? You're you're in a you know YouTube. You talked about earlier. You know, it's a, it's a fast moving space. They change algorithms. They change, you know, whatever. The landscape's out of your control, and it's constantly changing. And then you're you're now entering new businesses that you've never done before. Mm -hmm. um, where, where do you go for help with that? Uh, I have, I have one mentor, um, but beyond that, it's just winging it. It's, it's dealing with change and adapting and, and just knowing that you can't be relying on any, anyone or platform except for yourself. It's amazing. The audience that we've built on YouTube, but that can go away in one day and you should all sure. for that just as any other platform, like an Instagram model, right? Or like right. whatever. So yep. it's knowing that if you don't own the platform or you don't own your audience then and somebody else owns it you just have to always be aware of something like that so we're always prepared for the worst um but just taking it day by day and doing it you know so there is no help at the end of the day if my channel goes out tomorrow there's nobody i can right I can, that's what i learned with soundcloud yeah sure if you put all your eggs in one third party basket that basket can go away <laughs> right yeah yeah that's that's uh unfortunate yeah, you just you can't be oblivious to, to that. You know, everyone excited about their numbers. You know, my numbers testament to YouTube, right? I grew my audience because YouTube was fostering a music community, and sure. I was I was answer, I was a byproduct of that. That's right. So awesome. fortunate, but again, I don't own that audience. It's not tangible. I can't sell my YouTube channel to an investor. It doesn't work that way. Right. But I can IP and catalog to an investor. I can sell my original programming to an investor. I can right. sell my I can sell Digital Mirage to brand to an investor and, right. and all emails and data that we collected, like that's tangible, but you can't sell a YouTube channel. So right. you need to be aware of that. Yeah. Right. No, that's great, man. This is a fun conversation. We should definitely do it yeah, again. An hour passed by in two seconds. So I know. Fast. This is great. Um, but yeah, I'll let you guys get to it, man. Thanks for making the time. 
Uh, we're definitely going to tune in to, uh, to Digital Mirage and uh, everyone will be following you on proximity. Yeah, that was Blake Coppelson on Rebel Radio. Shout out to my man, Ethan. Thank you for co-hosting with me. Uh, let us know what you think of that. You can leave us a comment on Twitter or Facebook. It's at Rebel Radio Net. You can uh, always leave us a review on iTunes if you want. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.